You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on August 18th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Business Innovation and Managing Life Q&A. So we have a number of questions saved up from our most recent, well, actually our most recent, but one session. Um, The question here from Fire, how do you keep track of all the information you have reviewed from articles to journals, to emails, to books? Okay, reasonable question. I think about that a lot. I look at many things and it's like I learn some interesting fact. I see some interesting piece of material. What do I do with it? Um, I would say that the number one thing that I try to do is I try to have buckets for every project that I think I'm going to do. So at any given time, there maybe are a few tens of such buckets. And when I see something that is relevant to one of those buckets, I throw that thing in there. And I throw it in there in a perhaps not terribly organized way, because I know that when I'm actually going to do that project, I'm perfectly happy to go through and look at what was there um, that I've been accumulating maybe for 10 years, 20 years, whatever. As it happens, just last night, I was uh, there's a particular drawer right behind my desk that has been accumulating stuff for, as it turns out, about 20 years. I didn't really know how long it had been accumulating stuff. And for various reasons, I wanted to look through some things that had been accumulating there. Actually, I realized that things that have been accumulating there about our physics project, and by golly, we've done the big, the big uh, stage of that project. And so I looked through that drawer just last night, and there were things there from 2004 that were sort of pre-pieces of that project. Now, actually, that was a failure because I hadn't looked at that drawer since 2004. So those were things which I had prepared for that project. But when I got to do that project, I didn't know to look for them. And in fact, forgot for two years to look for them. So, and the reason that happened is because I didn't really have an organized bucket in which to put things for that project because that project was still was too far in the future. But in general, the thing that works for me is whether there's something I think I'm going to do, it's, you know, I throw anything I find that's relevant to that into that particular bucket so that when I am ready to really actively do the project, I can go through and look at it. Now, you know, it wouldn't work if I had thousands of these buckets because I'd never remember what buckets there were. I have to have a few tens of them. And typically what I do I would say that my favorite way of doing that is just have it in my file system. And uh, I also have some email folders that I throw things into. I have to say I am trying to discontinue that practice. And I have some code that is almost ready that will take uh, folders from email and turn them into Wolfram Notebooks, turn the content of that folder into a Wolfram Notebook in a nice organized way so that I can just store that notebook in a file system. So when that project becomes active, I will look at what's there in the file system. And that I think is going to be a a better system for, for doing that. Now, as far as just random things where I say, oh, that's kind of interesting. I don't really have a place to put it. Um, Honestly, I, that's always a challenging thing. 
I have a things to read folder and I, you know, which I, which I expect to bring up when I'm kind of waiting for something, standing in line somewhere. I've just got my phone. I'm going to bring it up. I have it in, uh, you know, in Dropbox or whatever, and I'm going to bring up that folder. And um, uh, then I'm going to say, well, what is there that I can just randomly read because I've got a few minutes to read something? Um, since I haven't been out and about in the world and traveling and, and having times where I'm just sort of waiting for things much in the last couple of years, uh, my things to read uh, kind of um, collection has just gotten, mostly just gotten longer and longer. Um, and those are sort of undifferentiated, unbucketed things. Uh, I think that I also have, uh, you know, I get books and things. Books sometimes I'll sometimes I'll buy a hardcover book or hard uh, a printed book, just for the sake of reminding me that this is something I wanted to look at, and because it will sit somewhere and I have a specific shelves actually, that in fact I have some shelves right here that are that are specifically my holding pen for books that I'm kind of intending to look at before they get put into my long-term shelving. So in, in terms of, for example, for books, I have maybe, I don't know how many it is now, 8,000 or so books. They're all categorized. They're all on shelves in particular places. When I want to think about a particular topic, I'll go and look at the shelves about that topic. And I have to say, I'm continually very, uh, I find it very interesting. I've got a lot of very interesting books. Maybe someday I'll do some live streams and just sort of go and survey some books that I have. But, but for me, it's very useful. You know, I've got some topic I'm looking at and I'll go look at the books I have on that topic. And it's like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of interesting books there. I'd forgotten I had those. It's the same thing in my online buckets. It's things like, I've got these interesting things. Um, I, uh, I just have to be reminded of them at the time when that project is going to become active. Um, now, as far as other things are concerned, like, for example, with email um, and just things I collect in general, uh, for the last 30-something years, I've had good archiving of those things. And so when a person, a topic, whatever shows up that has a sort of a keyword that allows me to search for it, I just have this thing I call a meta searcher, which is just a searcher that searches all the different places uh, in my file system. I've also scanned the quarter million or so pages of paper that I produced sort of before, mostly in the before 19, about mid 1980s, when I was still doing things on paper. Um, I've, I've scanned all of those and OCR'd them. And so uh, uh, if, I, if I have something that comes from that long ago, it's something that again, gets pulled up in my meta searcher um, that also pulls up, uh, as I say, email, files, uh, scanned documents, also pulls up things from our company records um, that uh, uh, contain information about those kinds of things. So that's, that's my kind of way of dealing with that. Um, as far as uh, I would say articles, uh, things like research papers and things like that, if there's, a, if there's a PDF of it, I'll stick it in the bucket, so to speak. Um, if there isn't, um, okay, when it comes to just pure links, I tend to make notebooks and in, in each bucket, I'll have a thing, notes 01, notes 02, notes 03, et cetera. Sometimes I'll say notes dash 04 dash and then a topic name. So the thing keeps ordered by kind of the, you know, the sequence in which I produce the notes. But then I know, again, when I go back to that bucket, 
I might have a note so one through note so seven or something that were put there over the course of maybe five years at different times. And now when that project is active, I'm just going to read through all of them. And uh, that's the time when I really want those sort of in my current working memory to think about them. Um, so those are, uh, those are kinds of some approaches. I would say that um, things that just sort of in an unstructured way go into my personal human memory, uh, you know, I think I have a reasonably good memory, but it's always challenging. And honestly, even in, even in terms of my own remembering of things, if I say I'm remembering this because it's connected to such and such a thing, it helps me. But I would say the number one thing is just putting things in these buckets for projects that I'm planning to do. And sometimes what will happen is there'll be a project I'm planning to do sometimes for a decade, sometimes for two decades, whatever. It'll have a particular name. And then there's one project in particular, my symbolic discourse language project, which will undoubtedly change its name before it lands. But that's had about four different names. And so if you look at the file system for that, at the bucket for that, so to speak, you'll find it has subfolders that are for different names that's had in the past. Doesn't really matter. You know, I'm, a, I'm hopefully soon going to make that project active. I'll just go through all of those things because that's easy to do at the time when, when I've, you know, after the accumulation is a slow process, the actively starting to work on it, it's like, okay, I'm rolling up my sleeves. I'm going to work on this thing. I can perfectly well go through all these, all these items to, to study that particular thing. So that's the, the approach I, I try to take. It, it's the important thing. The sort of general principle is, sort of organize those things into things that will be related to sort of definite activities where you say, I'm going to do this now. You know, there have been times when I've had things where I say, oh, this is a very useful general reference. I'm just going to put this somewhere because it's a useful general reference. It's usually a disaster when I do that. Unless it's something that I'm really going to look at every day, and there are very few of those things, I am, um, well, actually those things, okay, I should explain one more thing. I have a personal homepage that of course is built in Wolfram language, but deploys into just HTML in our cloud. Um, and uh, it contains links to things that I use all the time. Um, and whenever there's something that I don't use all the time, I even forget it's on that page. And it probably has, so oh, I don't know, a couple of hundred links on it, um, on that page. And I tend to, again, they're in sections, and sometimes there'll be, I don't know, there might be some, some website where there's, I don't know, let's say it's Wolfram Alpha, and then there'll be a vertical bar, and then it'll say the test version, then it might have the dashboards for usage dashboards, maybe it has the, the versions in different languages and things like that, they're all sort of in one line, so I kind of have it organized when I'm looking at it. But I find that even things which are not which I'm not actively using very much, I tend to even forget they're there on my personal homepage. And uh, I end up just searching for them in some completely different way. And, and typically what I'm doing is about every couple of times a year, I'm sort of looking at my personal homepage and saying, oh, there's a good bunch of goofy stuff here. Um, I'm going to reorganize it. Um, and it usually doesn't take me very long to remember the reorganization because I'm mostly, I've got enough high traffic things on the page that I'll be noticing the organization. Um, I also routinely, I would say, oh, probably two, three times a month, will add something to that page. There are also things which I, okay, so there's another tricky issue of organization, which I would say I have not done perfectly. Okay, I should explain a couple of other things. Okay, another piece of organization that I have is an events folder. And my events folder is organized by year. 
and it has a, a, a subfolder for every event I'm doing. Now, an event is some kind of usually one-off thing. It is a talk I'm giving. It's a, um, it might be our summer school. It might be something like this. And that then is a folder associated with that event. And it's a folder that will be sort of intensely active in connection with that event specifically, and then will just become archival. And in a given year, I maybe do, I don't know what, 30 events or something. I don't know, maybe a little more than that. Um, it depends on how active the year is um, in terms of events. So I just have 30 subfolders and they're all sitting there. And when there's a new event coming up, I'm just, you know, I know the name of the event. It just has a subfolder. I just go there and that's where, and, and everything related to that event. So let's say I'm going to give a talk or something and there's a, uh, I'm giving a title and an abstract for that talk. There'll be a notebook that has the title and abstract and it'll be in that folder. And so when I'm actually sort of about to be active, I'm about to actually give that talk, I'll open that folder and I'll say, oh, what did I say I was going to talk about here? It's right there in the folder. Um, so that's another thing. But, but a thing that can happen is that um, there are things which, let's say we're doing our summer school or we have our annual technology conference or one of these other kinds of things, and there's a whole lot of material related to that. That will go in the events folder and it will be active for a certain time. Sometimes I will put things related that I try to avoid doing this actually on my personal homepage because I don't really want to change the personal homepage a lot. So I tend to have generic links like to our summer school, which will be, uh, which will go to pages that will then have redirections on them to the current year's material and so on when that becomes active. So let's see, is there anything else along those lines I could tell you guys? I think that's, that's, a, that's a good start for my sort of personal organization efforts. Um, let's see. Uh, question here from Raphael about startups. He's asking specifically about Latin America, but he's asking about starting a company where there's no specific tech community or the people might not be ready for the adoption of the thing you have. Right, well, so there are a couple of points to make here. So one question is, if you're gonna do a company, but let's say a software company, should you do it in a place where there are lots of other software companies, or should you do it in a place where there are no other software companies? I think that depends a little bit on the personality, on your personality, maybe more even than the mechanics of, of the company itself. Let me explain that issue. Let's say you say, I'm gonna do a software company. Uh, let's say I'm going to do a company that is related to, oh, I don't know, video or something like this. Uh, that's a bad example. But let's just say, you could say, well, where's the place in the world that has more software engineers than any other? Highest density of software engineers. Pretty high density in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's nowadays a certain density in New York City. There's a certain density in a few other places. You can say, well, I want to go to a place where there's a high density of people who are relevant to the company I'm trying to do. Uh, well, that's fine. That means you show up there and people will say, well, I could, if, if I'm gonna do this particular thing, I've got 10 companies that I could go work for. Yours is one of them and convince me to work for your company rather than a bunch of others. But nevertheless, there are those engineers or whatever it is right there available. They can sort of come, come and, and work at your company. You go to a place where, where people are like, uh, you know, there are no other software companies in town. 
it's like you could have a situation where people say, what's software? I don't know what that is. I don't, you know, nobody knows anything about it. But you could have a situation where people say, fantastic. I've always wanted to work for a software company. There just wasn't one in town here. This is terrific. Now, of course, things have changed in the last couple of years, particularly about sort of how remotely you can have people working for a company. My company, we have been very geo-distributed for 25 years, more than that, maybe 30 years now. Um, and so that's, that's sort of a different dynamic. It's not, you know, are you there in town doing something? Then really the question is um, sort of, uh, you know, it's even a question, what does it even mean to be located in place X? Uh, you know, you might be there as CEO, but maybe your employees are mostly distributed in completely different places. I have to say that my own impression, and perhaps this is a, as I say, it's a little bit of a personal personality type issue, there's sort of a choice. You can be doing a popular thing in a popular place and so on, in which case you're part of all kinds of other people who are doing that thing. And everybody knows what the point of what you're doing is. Other people say, oh yeah, I get it. But it's a very competitive situation where it's like, well, there are lots of other people in the same place doing the same kind of thing. That's sort of thing number one. Thing number two is you can be doing something that you care about, but nobody around you cares about. And as far as other people are concerned, it's like, oh, that person's doing that weird thing. We don't know about that. We don't care about it. It's a, a backwater kind of activity. It's, it's, you know, you have to then, then a different situation. In the, in the first case I mentioned, as soon as you say, I'm doing X, people will say, oh, you're doing X. We understand what that is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, second case, you say, I'm doing X, people say, what on earth is that? Explain that to me. So in that second case, you're constantly having to tell people, this is what X is, it's great, here's why, let me explain it to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these are two different choices. But on the other hand, in that second case, you can go decades with nobody else doing what you're doing. And where people are just like, oh, you're doing that, okay, you know, I'm doing something completely different. It isn't a competitive type thing. It's a thing where you get to just build what you build for yourself. It's not the same kind of story. So those are, you know, depending on your personality, those are two different situations you might like to find yourself in. Personally, I tend to prefer the second one. I tend to prefer the one where I'm doing something that nobody else around necessarily cares about. I like to build a team where the team cares about it, but I'm not so concerned about whether sort of the ambient world cares about these things. I mean, perhaps my reason for that personally is that I'm sort of, uh, it is, I suppose it's an egotistically gratifying thing to feel that I'm doing something that wouldn't be being done unless I was doing it, rather than I'm going to do something a little bit better than other people, but everybody else knows I'm doing it and, and I'm going to get an A star, you know, uh, or something if, if, um, if I do it well, because everybody kind of knows what it is. I prefer the I'm doing something unique that in the next hundred years, nobody would have done if I hadn't done it, rather than I'm going to sort of win the race relative to other people. But different people work differently and different people get motivated in different ways. So in terms of, of now, when you're starting a company, uh, you know, there are things which at least in the past have been issues. Like people say, what does it mean to start a company? I don't even know how to incorporate a company in this place, wherever it is. I don't know, you know, there might be a, a situation where people are 
you know, where you try to hire people and they're like, I don't know what it means to have a startup here. I don't think that's an issue in today's world. I think that sort of startup culture in the last probably 15 years has become sufficiently widely known that pretty much anywhere in the world, people will say, oh, you say, I'm going to do a tech startup. They'll say, oh, I know what a tech startup is. Um, you don't really have to explain that. Back in the day, you did have to explain that. And I explained it many times in, in sort of in the past, but I don't think you have to explain that anymore. I think people kind of know what it is. Now, the question is things like, okay, if you need investment money, can you get investment money? A lot of, I, I think, it, in the, certainly in the past, investment money was very local. People were like, you know, I, I knew plenty of Silicon Valley venture capital people who said, I'll never invest in something that, you know, takes me more than 30 minutes to drive to type thing. I want to actually see the people in person. I want to kind of be able to, to uh, uh, have a, a direct, you know, personal interaction with everybody I'm investing in and so on. I don't know whether that's going to have survived the pandemic. Um, I think that that may not be a thing so much anymore. Um, I'm not sure about that. Uh, may go the other way. People may say, I'm so desperate to have to interact with people in person. We really got to do this in person. When it comes to assessing whether something is going to be, if you're an investor and you're trying to figure out, is this company going to be a win or not? Um, you know, does it help to meet the people in person? Probably does. Does it help to understand sort of the, the, the ambience of what's going on with the company and the people? It absolutely helps. Um, it you know, it is a very difficult thing when you're presented with, here's a potential company idea, here are some people, it's like, is this going to be a win or not? Is this going to be a good thing to invest in or not? It's really hard to tell. Um, I think, you know, I have friends who I think will be viewed as some of the sort of top venture capital people. And I think they would say it's very hard to tell. They typically will say um, they, you know, have found it better to bet on the people than the ideas, typically. That is, there will be a person who can turn any idea, even an idea that seemed kind of goofy at the beginning, and they'll find a way to navigate that idea through to success. While somebody who has a fantastic idea, if you have sort of the wrong person, will navigate it to failure, so to speak. And, that's, and so people tend to say, I'm going to bet on the person more than the idea. But it's more complicated than that because it's, you know, there's a person who can be presenting it's sort of the person is being is is mostly in most cases is coming with the idea that's what they're presenting it's like i'm me and i'm going to ceo of this company and this is my idea and you're presenting the two things together if it's just like i'm me let me tell you why i'm great uh, independent of any idea it's kind of like these these spac companies these special purpose acquisition company ideas where it's like people invest a bunch of money and then they're going to go find something to invest in. I suppose one could imagine sort of a SPAC version of, of, uh, of raising money as a CEO, where you say, just invest money in me, and I'm going to find something interesting to, uh, to, use that, to, to use that money for. That hasn't yet, now that I think about it, maybe it's a thing that should be happening. It hasn't really yet been a thing. It's always like people raise money as a CEO. They say, uh, you know, give me money give me money to do this particular thing. So, uh, you know, I think there's a question if you're trying to do that in a place where there really isn't a tradition of, for example, investment or the investment tradition is different, um, you know, is that a problem? 
probably is a problem if you're trying to raise money. It may not be so much of a problem in this post-pandemic world, so to speak, because it may be that investment has also become as geo-distributed as I think some work will become. I have to say, I suspect, you know, as I say, our company has been very geo-distributed for 30 years, and we've developed a culture where that works just great. I think a lot of companies don't have that culture. And even though they've been sort of using it for a year and a half, it isn't very natural to them. And my guess is that there will be quite a bit of backlash of like people saying, oh, yes, everybody can work remotely. Uh, well, actually, this isn't working very well. No, 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 you've all got to come back to the office. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I think there will be cases where people say, oh, look, remote work really worked. Um, we can, you know, have this really be done remotely. But I'm going to guess that more companies than one would expect will realize that their long-term corporate culture was not as compatible with this and that they could do it in a pinch, but that it wasn't really the way that was natural for them to be doing it. Um, I think, uh, so I don't really know how that's going to work in terms of investment money and so on. I think that, you know, it has been typically the case that there are parts of the world, like Silicon Valley, for example, where a given idea, if you say, how much is it worth? How much can you get invested in this idea? There'll be some number in Silicon Valley. There'll be some smaller number in, I don't know, someplace in Europe. There'll be some even smaller number somewhere else, just because the kind of the expectations of scale are different. Now, another question is customers. Depends what you're making. You know, there are some things that are pretty regional and where you have to actually meet your customers to be able to sell it. Maybe you have to deliver the object to customers to be able to sell it. Then obviously it matters where you are in the world, so to speak. If what you're doing is I'm going to put up a website, it's like you could be anywhere. You could be, you know, for all anybody knows, it's a, you know, it's a dolphin, a chimpanzee or something putting up that website. Nobody will necessarily know. I always find it interesting when I see a website, I, I ask myself the question, where did this website come from? Where, you know, is it a, you know, is it a sort of plain American website or did it get created in some other country or is it some, something that's based in Scandinavia or, or Romania or, or uh, uh, you know, or, or uh, I don't know, some, some, other, some other place in the world? You know, can you tell? And sometimes you, you go and you notice a few funny things about the website. You notice some particular type of sort of style presentation that seems, you know, reminds you of kind of French culture or something. And then you realize you look in the end and you find, oh, yes, it's, you know, it's a French company or whatever. And it, it does tend to be the case that even though, you know, that companies that sort of come from a particular part of the world, often their presentation will reflect the part of the world they come from. That may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. Um, it's uh, uh, you know it really depends on lots of uh, lo lots of things. But it's something where if you are in place X, there is some sense in which kind of the local culture is going to rub off on you, and that will be visible in the way that you present what you're doing. And I think that that comes through. You know, when you try and market products. I mean, for example, one thing that has often been the case is you see companies. I would see them quite often from, well, particularly Europe, for example, where it's like just the, 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 the kind of the worldview about the product was strangely different than it would be in the US. And the things that people thought were important about the product and thought were important to say about the product 
were different from they were what they were in the US. And that meant that when those places would try and you know they could they could market well within their country where they understood what they were marketing and who they were marketing it to. But when they tried to sort of make the jump to the US market, for example, it just didn't quite ring correctly. And and people and, and it didn't wasn't successful there. I mean, I think that um, uh, you know, you see this in advertising in general, and I, you know, don't know the ads of very many countries, but um, you know, traditionally there will be, I don't know, in the UK, for example, where I am, I have to say I'm probably deeply out of date, but it used to be the case that ads were much more intellectual and they they maybe barely mentioned the product they were advertising, whereas in some other countries it'd be like, you know, the product, the product, the product, it's there in every frame. And uh, it's, you know, and there are statements like the product is great, where, you know, if you saw that in a, in a UK ad or something, that would be just deadly. People would just laugh at it. You know, maybe there's some retro, you know, kind of um, uh, sort of second level uh, kind of version of it where, where it'd be okay. But, but as such, you wouldn't do that. It's a very sort of indirect way of communicating things. And I suppose that that, that ambient culture that you see in ads in different countries um, does tend to come through when people are trying to present their own company, perhaps for a global market. And I would say that I'm quite sure that when we try to present things in, in other markets, uh, it's a challenge. It's, you know, we end up with people, I'll say in Japan, India, or I don't know, wherever else, you know, we try to make sure we have specific people who really understand something about that market and that culture, because the things that you might say, I mean, I don't know, for example, in uh, Wolfram Alpha in Japan, uh, we have a version in Japanese and, you know, a big break there was some, uh, having nothing to do with us, some uh, teen uh, pop star type person who, you know, put on, I don't know where, Line or some other place like that, um, you know, some social media place that, you know, this was really, this was really helping her with her homework. Okay, great. Um, would that have worked in the US? Would a comparable thing, could we have taken that idea and made that a US idea? Probably not. Probably wouldn't have worked. It's probably the set of people who, the, the, the type of communication that, um, uh, that was relevant there was, was very different. That was a particular thing that just sort of we were like, oh, thanks. We appreciate the, um, you know, the shout out type thing. It wasn't something that we had orchestrated. Um, in other places, it's like, uh, you know, you, you have to really think through how are you going to present things. Um, and I think it's the same coming out from a country, so to speak, um, and saying, how do you present to the world? You're used to a particular form of presentation in that country that may ring very poorly in another part of the world. Um, I think this happens with, uh, oh, it just, I mean, our, our company, we're probably fortunate because we do have people from all over the world involved with the company. And I think that provides us a certain level of perspective that I find really useful in terms of understanding kind of sort of different views of things that you might get from around the world. Let's see. There's uh, all kinds of questions here. Um, okay, there's a question from Milan. How do you manage family life around a busy schedule with personal and business interests? Um, you know, I have four kids, three are pretty grown up by now. Um, and uh, I, 
I um, enjoy them very much. And um, I, I've tended to, the typical thing I do is I, I, I work really hard and I probably work, I don't know how many, 14 hours a day, I don't know, 16 hours a day. I have no idea what it is, probably 14 or something. Um, but I've tended for years, like for 25 years or more, you know, at about six o'clock local time, I'm like, I'm going to go off and have dinner and with whatever family members are around and I'll, I'll restart my kind of work. I, I often say, I'm really gonna restart by eight o'clock, but it's always 8.30 in practice. Now, will I be completely 100% focused on non-work things for that period? No, I'll have my computer and as soon as I get bored, I'll open it up and, and be doing things. But fundamentally, that's a time that I've sort of tended to, to carve out for that purpose. I have found um, the, uh, um, I, uh, I've had all kinds of different mechanisms and, and venues in which I've been able to, you know, interact with my wife and various, uh, and, and children and so on. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, uh, I, I tend to find, I think predictability is, tends to be a good thing all around. Um, and uh, of particular times when people expect that this is gonna happen, that's gonna happen, et cetera, rather than just like, oh, let's kind of play by ear what we're going to do. I found that that doesn't work very well um, because people uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a question of, oh, well, the time when you think you're going to do this, actually, the other person isn't really ready, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I found that that is a, it's a good mechanism. I would say another thing, uh, particularly for my children, is uh, they've, um, uh, they're not unaware of what I do for a living, so to speak. And there are all kinds of things where, where um, things I do are things that I'm talking to them about, maybe they help with. Uh, maybe they're users of things we do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's not kind of a, a separated thing where it's like, oh, there's me going off and, and, you know, doing sort of black box work. And there's me being kind of a person interacting with, with family and so on. Um, it's it's a, a somewhat more mixed thing. And I think that's been, oh, I'm sure that's been interesting. My, my different children have different uh, approaches and attitudes towards um, uh, you know, what, what we've been doing and, and which parts of it they're interested in. But I would say that it's for them, I, I would like to think it's been a, a big positive to, for example, see so many projects go from sort of uh, from just getting started or just being thought about to being sort of big things in the world. Often my children have, have given me a hard time about some new project that I'm doing about like, that's a stupid project and so on. And sometimes they're right. And quite often they're not right. And um, I think that's probably been a useful thing for, to be seen all, all around. Um, I, I would say that, uh, um, yeah, let's, um, let's see. Um, okay, there's a question here from your chill mate, it says. How can you deal with school that demotivates your will to explore and learn new stuff? Yeah. Well, just do stuff on your own. You know, I think one of the terrible things about schools often these days is they become kind of 
uh, all encompassing 24 seven activities. I, I don't think, I don't think it was true in the, in the distant past. I think school was school and then there was the rest of your life. And for me, for example, when I was a kid, you know, I went to very fine schools that were kind of very, um, uh, you know, would generate lots of work and so on, but somehow didn't take even close to all my time. And so I spent most of my time doing things I was interested in, which in those days was typically physics. And, you know, I would do big projects and so on. And in many cases, somewhat pathologically, I perhaps in retrospect, I would write big things. I didn't show them to anybody for 30 years that, you know, you can now find them on the web. But, um, uh, you know, I was just doing them for myself because I thought they were interesting and um, uh, wasn't sort of for for worldly consumption, so to speak. But I think the important thing is, is make sure you have time to do stuff you are interested in. If 100% of your time is being spent just doing, you know, treadmill, treadmill, treadmill stuff that you say, oh, I should be doing this because then I'm going to get a certificate that will let me do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I kind of think that's a mistake. Um, I know there are people who really enjoy the kind of the, the, the racetrack atmosphere, so to speak, of I'm just going to do more stuff and I'm going to run faster than everybody else. I don't happen to be one of those people. Some people are. And I think for some people, it's very motivating to be in that situation. But by the time you're asking about things, about being demotivated from things in school, I would say the thing to do is figure out what you are motivated about, uh, have that be a thing that you can spend time on and carve out the time to spend time on that. And even if somebody says to you, oh, if you're in high school, let's say, oh, if you don't do at least you know, five extracurricular activities, colleges aren't going to like you. It's like, okay, so what? You know, in other words, if there's a college that says you need to have done five extra, five, maybe too many, but extracurricular activities, well, that college is being goofy. Doesn't make any sense. Maybe that college isn't the right college. Maybe it's a college which has, uh, you know, is, is past its prime and asking for things that don't make any sense. I think that um, the thing that um, uh, one, um, um, one might uh, want to, um, um, uh, you know, so I, I would say the important thing is find things you care about and then spend some amount of your time at least doing those things. When it comes to things in school, it's, um, uh, you know, one of the things that can happen is there are classes which um, maybe were, if you can choose what classes you take, for goodness sake, choose classes that you actually care about. If you do a class you don't care about, yeah, you might do okay. You'll get uh, whatever grade you get. And then a year will go by and somebody will ask you about it. And it's like, oh yeah, I did a class about that. I don't remember anything in that class. That's like, you just wasted the time really, unless the only goal was to get the piece of paper to get, you know, to move up the, up the next rung of the ladder. But that's an unfortunate way to live. Much better that you do a class where you say, well, I'm really, I'm really curious about this class. I'm really interested. It's going to be really fun. You get really excited about it. You put time into it. The time kind of whizzes by and then you remember it for the rest of your life. Now, I mean, I might say about this thing about, oh, you've got to do, check this box, do this extracurricular, do this thing, do that thing, because then people will like you better. Well, there's often theories about that. And there's often things where people say, well, you've got to have done this and this and this, and then you'll be positioned to do whatever. Often those theories are nonsense. 
And often those theories are about the past. It's like, you know, well, it was the case that this was the way, you know, based on the analysis of Ivy League schools at this time, this is exactly the right box to check to get into this. And, you know, doing exactly the right kind of uh, uh, sort of socially conscious whatever thing was the exact right thing box to check. Oh, but whoops, the world moved on. And there's a new class of people who are, you know, getting to the top schools because they had this great, uh, you know, video blog or the, because they had this great other thing or because, you know, in other words, I, I, I have to say I'm a great believer in just do what motivates you yourself. And then so long as you can present what you're doing and you say to some school or some employer, this is the great stuff I'm doing. Do you like it? And if they say no, well, then it's probably not a good fit. If every place in the world says no, then that's more of a challenge. And then you end up being an entrepreneur and having to sort of stand the organization up for yourself, so to speak, rather than saying, I'm going to join your school, company, whatever, where I can get to do this and you're going to want me to do it, so to speak. So I, I'm, I, I think, you know, it's, it's do the things you want to do and then figure out. And sometimes it's a puzzle. Like you, you say, I've got to do these things because that's what I need to do to get to this school, company, whatever else, that's exactly my dream, whatever it is, right? And, and you've got a whole theory of how to get there. Um, I would say that type of theory is one of those calculated for failure kinds of things. In other words, sometimes you'll be wrong about that was the exact right path to follow, you know, checking all the boxes, you know, you get perfect scores and everything, and then you discover, well, actually the colleges that you want to go to say, well, if the person is that perfect, there must be something, you know, they're too one-dimensional. They're not what we want type thing. Or who knows what? You know, that, that's one thing. The other thing is sometimes the thing you thought was your dream place, you were wrong about it. You know, it's sometimes it's a, you get there, and then it's like, be careful what you wished for, because it isn't what you thought it was. And, you know, sometimes it's actually a good thing when you say, here's what I am, here's what I do, here's what I like to do. So long as you can present that well, and the place you're presenting it to says, eh, we don't like that. Well, maybe that's a sign that had you gone there, you would in fact not have been happy, because in fact, it wasn't a good fit. Not to say that it's a perfect system. It, it is far from a perfect system. And there are many constraints and issues and, and crazy things and confusions and so on that happen. So that's not a perfect process. But it's something to realize that it may not be completely flawed in those respects. But I would say that the, um, uh, you know, this, this idea of, so, so then another issue is that people around you are saying, you should do this and this and this. Well, they might be right. They might be 30 years out of date. It might be like, well, when I was in college, says a parent like me or something, um, you, know, uh, you know, when I was in college, this is how it worked. That must be how it works today. Oh, well, actually, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, there, there are all kinds of issues like that that come up. Let's see. Um, yeah, I think that this question was about, you know, school demotivating things. I mean, there's, there's some other things that can happen. Like, for example, it's like, well, I think I'm going to do math in school, but 
but everybody says I'm bad at math when I do math in school. That happened to me when I was 10 years old, actually. Actually, I wasn't so keen on math, but, but I didn't do very well in math when I was about 10 years old. And turns out at the time, math consisted of sort of doing algebra and getting all the minus signs right and so on. And I found it kind of boring and not very, I couldn't really see the point of it. Uh, I, I sort of soon did see the point of it in terms of wanting to do things like physics that use that stuff. And then I had this kind of idea, well, maybe I can get a computer to do that stuff instead. So then the, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, sometimes there are these kind of silver linings that happen about um, this thing where it's like, uh, you know, you, let's say some subject that you're doing and, and, um, and you're not doing very well in it in school. That could be because it's just not a very good fit for you, but it could also be that the subject as you learn it at that stage in school isn't the real thing that's the interesting version of that subject. I know, for example, English writing, very common case for this. People who are going to become great writers often don't do very well in you know, earlier stages of school because somebody says, do you, does your essay fit this particular template for how essays should be structured? It doesn't, you're gonna get a bad grade. Is it a brilliant essay? Yes, it's a brilliant essay, but the person can't necessarily tell that. And it may not be, they say, but I'm grading everybody's essay the same way. So I've got to grade your essay poorly, even though, well, yes, if it appeared in some place where there were great essays, somebody would say, wow, that really pulls me in. It's really a great essay, but it just doesn't fit that, that particular template and pattern. And so that can happen. And you know, sometimes the, the stage of a subject that you're learning in school isn't the interesting stage of the subject. Sometimes you need what you consider to be the boring stage of the subject to be able to sort of build the scaffolding to get to the next stage. I would say that's rarer than you think. I would say that usually if you're motivated in a subject, you can learn the more advanced stuff that you're more interested in. You can gradually fill in the more elementary stuff later, even though according to the sort of official school way of doing it, it's like, don't run before you can walk. I found in, in I mean, it's a story of a lot of stuff I've learned is, you know, I learn the advanced stuff that I care about. And then I realize, oh my gosh, there's some elementary thing I don't understand. Okay, then you go off and understand it. And so long as it doesn't freak you out that like, oh my gosh, you know, I've been building this kind of giant castle in the, in the sky, so to speak. And there's a, there's a big support pillar that's missing. Well, you know, then you go fill it in. I mean, like I, I'm, I'm, uh, um, I'm about to do a sort of binge reading of a bunch of things uh, to do with, well, uh, let's see, several, several different areas actually um, about philosophy and about math and various other kinds of things um, where it's like, yeah, there are things I don't know and uh, that you know, I need to know now. I didn't ever care about them before. If I'd done a class about them back in the day, I didn't do that many classes at all myself, but, but um, uh, if I'd done a class, I probably would have been you know, I probably just wouldn't have got the point. Just no idea. Um, actually, I'm thinking of it as a particular kind of um, um, sort of computational structure that I've just been looking at, um, where for years I've heard about these things. I've never understood them. Every time I look at them, it's like, I'm totally confused by this. I finally have a reason to care about these things. And I now understand, I think, how they work rather nicely. And I have my own understanding of it. And I'm all excited about it. Um, it's a question here. Gosh, there's so many, lots of interesting questions here uh, from uh, Ideod. 
Um, how much time do you spend on technology intelligence? How are you keeping eyes on topics you may be interested in? Um, I kind of read all kinds of just general magazines and stuff and so on. Um, I also, uh, when I'm, the things that I'm interested in sort of today, they often have little spin-offs that relate to other things that are going on. And I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll poke those a little bit. I tend to be one of these people who, when there's a new technology coming out, I'll, um, uh, I'll always try and, you know, I'll, I'll try and I'll buy the gadget. I'll, um, you know, get the software installed. I'll, you know, if it's relevant, I'll talk to the company um, uh, that, that's making it or whatever. I'll ask somebody in my company to go research it a bit. I, I like to be kind of, I like to know something about the leading edge. Sometimes that's confusing because sometimes the leading edge is 20 years too early and you learn about the thing and then you say, ah, it's all nonsense. And then, you, and then you keep saying that even when many years later, it isn't nonsense. And I have to say one of the things I, I made a mistake once and I, I sort of decided I'm make this mistake again, which was when the web started. I, it took me a number of months to really start caring about the web. Why? Well, because there'd been previous things. There'd been gopher, there'd been wastes. There'd been a bunch of things you've never heard of, which were like ways to access sort of server-based things. And, you know, I knew about all of them. I'd learned about all of them and they were all kind of, yeah, well, whatever. Um, then, you know, what really launched the web was things like being able to have GIFs on the web and, and, and uh, you know, a sort of uh, being able to have graphical content and so on. And I didn't particularly, you know, it, it took me a few months to realize, oh, this is something significant and it's really different from what I'd previously seen with something that I thought was the same kind of technology. So I try to not make that mistake uh, again. But sometimes if you learn about stuff too early, it, it either, uh, you know, it, it's hard to see why one would care. And, um, uh, you know, another good example is machine learning. I, I knew about neural nets back in 1980. I even worked on neural nets back then. I didn't know why one would care. When, uh, because I couldn't get them to do anything interesting. I knew there were people who were working on this, the people who kind of pursued it for a long time. And every time I'd look at what they were doing, it's like, oh, this is kind of complicated engineering stuff and it's not clear it works very well. And maybe it has a few use cases, but it's nothing, not a general thing. And so then when I first, you know, in 2011, when, when uh, uh, people kind of suddenly discovered that, oh, actually, you know, you can use these deep networks and do image recognition and it actually works. It, it again, it took me probably a few extra months to be like, oh, this is something interesting that we should really look at because I had already had that past knowledge. Now, perhaps it cuts both ways because the fact that I already knew uh, well about how neural nets worked, I knew a bunch of the people involved in it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That probably tipped the balance the other way of helping me to understand new technology better but it's, it's, a, it's a complicated thing. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I've also found is that uh, sort of, you know, internalizing technology, using it oneself is really important. There are things where it's like, oh, yes, I hear about there's this amazing thing that you can do, and it's all a bit abstract to me. I mean, I was really struck maybe more than a decade ago now when I finally 
well, not finally, I mean, I was pretty early in that business said, okay, I'm going to get my genome sequenced. Right? And the thing comes back in a little disk drive and all that. I think I was uh, maybe 30th, I don't know what, something or other, not some number of tens of, 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 of first people, so to speak, to, to get their whole genome sequenced. Uh, we were working with a company that did that sequencing at the time and so on. So it was kind of a, a bit of an, uh, of an inside story. But um, the, um, the, thing that, um, uh, the thing that did for me was once I had my genome on my computer, all those things that I'd sort of theoretically learned about genetics, within a day, I really understood those a lot better because I could kind of, I don't know, maybe it gave me more of a reason to care. Maybe it was just a concrete example where it's like, I'm just gonna really look at this in a concrete case. What about my gene for whatever it is? You know, how does it compare to the reference sequence? Let me understand that. Or what does it mean that it has this, you know, stack of reads and a consensus from the stack of reads and so on. Oh, there's a place where I really care about that base pair, but it isn't, doesn't have a consensus value then I'm sort of into it and really trying to understand what's going on. And so for me, when I sort of see some piece of technology just purely float by, it's much less helpful to me than when I can actually internalize it. Now, sometimes that internalization for me as, as somebody running a software company is, oh, let me get the team to go investigate this. And then they'll make some kind of proof of concept version of here's how we connect to such and such a thing or make use of such and such a thing. And then it's like, okay, now I can concretely understand it within this context that I understand of our software uh, stack. Let's see. Uh, JY says, I started a business by accident and now I'm trying to find out how to build a real business around what was started by accident. Well, that sounds like a fortunate situation. If you've started it by accident and somehow it just took off of its own accord, um, you know, one of the things that can be challenging, it's been challenging sometimes for me, is there's a business that you say, eh, I don't know, we might as well give this a try, but it's not very interesting. And then the world loves it. And it's like, it's like people are like, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is great. And then sometimes you're thinking, well, actually, I don't really care about this. That wasn't what I was really trying to build. That's sort of a sideshow to what I was trying to build. I think you have to then get motivated to realize that the actual process of building the business is interesting in its own right. And it's kind of a, a um, uh, you know, you have to really focus on that. Even though what you thought you were doing were building, was building, let's say, a piece of technology or something of this kind, it's like, the, there's, so where do you engage the thinking apparatus? You can engage the thinking apparatus in thinking about the technology itself. And you could say, oh, but the business is sort of easy or irrelevant or well, not what I was really looking for. Or you can say, let me turn my you know, sort of thinking attention to the actual building of the business itself. Just like I design software, let's say, let me design the business and let me try and think through how, you know, what are the processes that I need to have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes with, um, you know, with businesses that sort of start to take off, there's a question of, so who do you bring in to help with it? Do you, do you wheel in the professionals and say, okay, now it's up to you to, to, to deal with this? My own inclination is that that's not a very good idea. That when there are particular functions, let's say you need a CFO, you need a, you know, you need somebody to do, uh, to maintain, you know, a, a server infrastructure, you need, you know, these particular functions 
then absolutely you should bring in people who can do those functions. It will work better if you have some understanding, if you could do some version of that function yourself, and then you hire somebody to do it, and maybe they do it a bit better than you could do it, but you vaguely, you, know, you do more or less understand what they're doing. It's not just a black box where you say, now you do the magic marketing thing. Even though I don't understand anything about marketing, that's not going to work well. You know, you have to understand roughly what people are going to be doing. And then you can say, now I understand what you're doing. I'm going to, you know, you're a person who's going to be able to do this well and better than I can. Great, go do this. I think the idea where you say, I'm going to now turn this into a real business. Let me wheel in the real business people and have them turn it into a real business. I think that's typically a doomed idea. I think that's an idea where you are, uh, where, it's kind of like you have the vision for what you're trying to do. And then, and so you have a great advantage over anybody else who comes in, even if you have somebody who is much more experienced at the general process of starting businesses, the vision, the understanding of the vision is an important thing. It is a very challenging thing to, to take an idea and sort of wheel in a CEO for it. Actually, there's a thing in the NFT space where I'm trying to do that right now. So if anybody out there is, uh, thinks they are a, a great, somewhat consumer-oriented um, uh, sort of uh, CEO who can take technology and kind of help deploy it, um, we're looking for such a thing right now. Um, but that is, I have to say, I think that's a difficult thing to find. And I suspect we'll end up betting on somebody who hasn't done CEOing before and who, for whatever reason, we think is well positioned to, um, uh, to really take this on, or maybe has done some very small scale CEOing or something. Um, I, I would say that the other thing about, about kind of wheeling the professionals, so to speak, is you know, building companies is hard and you have to be pretty motivated to do it. And when somebody says, I'm just gonna come in and I'm gonna you know, punch in at nine o'clock, punch out at five o'clock, and I'm gonna build the company. I don't know. Doesn't uh, that that's that's extremely challenging to make work. Maybe it's worked. I've not seen it work. Um, it tends to be the case that you know you really have to be eating, breathing, loving the thing you're doing in order to build it with the energy that it needs to actually build it. Um, and I think that um, uh, it's like, oh shucks, I built a company by mistake. When you're really in the big building phase, it's just not, it's the oh shucks, I ended up discovering a product or discovering a, a, uh, you know, a, a, a way to get a company started. That can happen sort of oh shucks by mistake. But once you're in the, the actual building process and the actual running of the, of the company, it tends to be a, a serious consuming thing, not for everybody. I mean, a thing that um, for me, you know, I, I've been CEOing my current company for what, 35 years or something now. And, uh, you know, I don't think I've really had a, a true vacation day all that time. It's like things will come up. And although the company is, you know, uh, not a small company at this point, it's got many layers of management. It's got, you know, many, most individual, oh, something blew up today. I'm not the one who's going to be handling that. But um, it's still... The case that somehow it just turns out you don't get to have a vacation if you're if you're doing serious CEOing, uh, and perhaps it also is affected in my case by the fact that we're always doing new stuff, and that's a place where where uh, it's very hard to 
you know, I, I, I tend to have to provide the leadership to get new stuff done, even if it isn't my idea, even if it's an idea that came from somewhere else, to get the ship to turn in that direction tends to require some kind of central leadership. Um, question here from Ori that I'm not sure I completely understand, but I'll try and... Um, uh, uh, it's a question, how important is law for success and payoff and what are doors it opens? Um, given that Bill Gates had a, has a higher net worth than Steve Jobs had, I, I'm not sure I even know that. I don't think that will be the case anymore. I, I, bet, if, um, I, I, I bet that Steve's stake of Apple has to be, uh, would have to be pretty valuable right now. And maybe, maybe Loreen now controls that. I don't really know. I haven't followed all of those things. But um, uh, the, um, the question, I suppose, is uh, sort of the using the law as a tool for company success and so on. I mean, you know, it, it relates to the question of um, kind of you are setting things up and you have a contract and you very cleverly managed to put this little extra clause in the contract that has has claws to the claws, so to speak. And, and there's going to be, you know, some terrible hook that the other side is going to realize little ways into it. Oh my gosh, they managed to get that into the contract. We're toast type thing. You know, that's a terrible way to do business. I mean, it, you know, contracts should be an explanation of what people, you know, of, of sort of a, a way of describing the alignment of, of companies, for example, that perhaps can survive, oh, the team changed, nobody knows what was agreed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and gives a way, gives a framework for working together. But by the time you're relying on some little hook somewhere to, uh, to extract something, and it wasn't sort of uh, part of the, the sort of the whole alignment of what was being done, it's, it's, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate way to be doing business. Now, you know, occasionally you'll end up in situations where the other side are schmucks. And then, you know, then you're like, well, I'm very glad that we made sure that there was this, you know, this, this clause in there that says, if this terrible thing happens, then that thing happens and so on. But I would say that that's not, uh, you know, that would not be, uh, at least in my theory of business, that's not kind of what one's looking for. One's looking for, you know, that's just a, a way of representing kind of what everybody had understood and, and taking it forward, so to speak. And I think there are places where, oh, people have used at different times, even friends of mine have done this quite a bit, uh, use patent law as kind of a way to say, it was my idea, you know, or sometimes not even it was my idea, it was I bought this patent as an investment and now I'm going to use it to make money, so to speak. You know, I'm not a fan of that way of, of living. Um, it's uh, uh, this thing about, it was my idea, you know, give me something for it. Uh, if that really worked perfectly, I would be, uh, uh, that would be great for my success, so to speak, because I've had a lot of ideas in my life and uh, they've turned out often to be quite good. And it's, um, you know, have I got my due for all of those ideas? Absolutely not. Is that, uh, you know, do I think that, you know, had I been more sort of meticulous legally, would I have got my due? Oh, I doubt it, but maybe, but maybe I would have spent, you know, decades of my life uh, litigating with people saying, give me my due for this thing. 
personally, I would much prefer to be in a position of, of inventing more stuff and, uh, uh, and trying to do things with the things I've invented rather than saying, oh, I've got this hook. Let me make use of that hook. Um, I mean, frankly, it's, it's uh, well, if you're involved in kind of academic intellectual things, it is shocking the extent to which sort of bad behavior occurs there. In the business world, I would say bad behavior occurs less often. And, um, uh, and certainly the, the kind of the overarching structure of law helps bad behavior happen less often. It is a more a better defined area, I would say, than sort of intellectual academic kinds of things. Um, because it's something where there's been, you know, where there's an actual structure in the legal system, as opposed to just, oh, well, the convention is blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but, you know, people don't necessarily follow it. There's probably more to say about that, but I'm not sure. Um, um, the, uh, uh, okay, there's a question from uh, CompBio. Who are people under 30 that inspire me? That one is sort of easy. My children is a really good start. And, um, you know, I've had the good fortune to work with uh, a bunch of younger people, very bright young people who come through our summer school, summer camp, work at our company and so on. I'm, uh, um, I, I really enjoy the young, so to speak. Um, I also do a bunch of stuff with kids um, and, um, uh, you know, what I particularly enjoy there is when people are kind of learning about the world and about ideas for the first time, they don't have all of this baggage of, oh, I know how it works. It has to work this way. I've heard about it for ages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're kind of free to ask questions and think about things in a kind of um, unfettered way. And, uh, you know, I, I think I try to channel that in the things I think about and try to think, you know, uh, what if the thing I've thought for the last 40 years isn't true, and actually this other thing is true? Let me, let me see what that consequence that would have. And that's a very childlike kind of thing. That's a very young person kind of thing to do. And I, you know, I, I, I like to believe that even at my ancient age, um, you know, I'm still able to sort of think flexibly like that. But it's something that I definitely uh, like seeing in, in young people, and I find sort of... Uh, 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 you know, it's, it's inspiring to see people where it's just like they, they, they come into things and sort of for the first time are looking at things. You know, one of the things that happens is that I think people have a certain way of thinking about things and that way of thinking about things, who knows how it's set? But, you know, they, they by the time they're, you know, high school age, they'll have that way of thinking about things. Sometimes, quite often, they'll have a definite way of thinking about things. Perhaps it's an unusual way of thinking about things. And if they find the right place to apply it, they'll be able to do all kinds of interesting things. Sometimes that unusual way of thinking about things, that's the one they got. And for the rest of their life, that's the one they're going to be pursuing. And if they're lucky, they'll find all kinds of venues in which that way of thinking really works out. But I think it's very interesting to see young people who have unusual ways of thinking that perhaps can crack things which the usual ways of thinking have not been able to crack. Sometimes somebody will have sort of an unusual way of thinking about things. And it's actually pretty rare that people get another completely different unusual way of thinking about things later. It tends to be the case that, you know, the unusual way of thinking about things or doing things that you get early 
is in some evolved form the thing you'll always have. I mean, I, I like to think that in, in my own case, there are things which I was, you know, I realized I was reasonably good at doing when I was quite young. And there are very much uh, uh, sort of um, embellished versions of those things that I have made use of subsequently in my life. And um, uh, whether it's, uh, and things where the core might be the same, like, oh, I don't know, understanding things in a clear way or something which turns into doing language design, which turns into doing various kinds of basic science, but the ultimate core skill is the same, but the embellishments look very, very fancy relative to that core skill. Um, and so it isn't just, oh, I have this particular thing I can do, and that's all I'll ever get to do. You can take that sort of core skill and embellish it, but to say, well, actually, I'm going to jump to a completely different core skill, that I think is a more challenging thing to do. Huh, there's a question from uh, Itza. Um, how do you deal with the feeling that you need to understand everything that exists before you can do something original? That's a terrible trap if you get into that. You know, I was looking at things actually about um, some areas of physics and math and so on that relate to the physics project we've just been doing. And it's like, oh my gosh, thank goodness I didn't read all this stuff because I would have drowned in it. You know, it's a hundred thousand papers about all kinds of things and all kinds of details and all kinds of ways of thinking about things. Turns out there's a kind of a way to cut through a lot of that. And the fact that I had some sort of awareness of these things, but I didn't dive into every detail, allowed me to make progress that I would never have been able to made, make if I'd been drowning in all of these details and all of these things where everybody knows X is true. Turns out X isn't true. But if you read, you know, 100 papers that say X is true, you are pretty much led to, well, X must be true, uh, rather than, well, let me think about something different. And then maybe I can read these papers later and see how they reflect on what I, what I now think is the case. I think what, what I tend to do is I define the problem very clearly of what I'm trying to work on. And I stick to that. And then I say, what do I need to understand to make progress with this problem? And it, it won't be everything. It won't be you know, all these different directions and areas and things that are sort of relevant to a different problem. I'm just trying to get my little drill, my little tunnel through the field and say, I want to understand the answer to my particular problem. And then I will try and learn all of the sort of legs that are needed to reach my particular problem, but I won't try to just learn the whole field. Because uh, again, it sort of relates to some things I was saying earlier, learning things in an unmotivated way, I find very difficult. I think people generally find it more difficult, if uh, maybe not as difficult as I find it. Um, but you know, when I'm motivated, when it's like, I need to know this, I learn it. I understand it, I remember it. If I'm just like, I'm gonna abstractly learn this, I'm just really bad at that. And it, it, like, it just, like, I, I, I know it, okay, great. Uh, I mean, sometimes at the level of, of learning small scale things, particularly when I'm talking to people, it's like, they'll tell me something that's like, oh, I'm doing this work on this thing. And it's like, oh, that's cool. And I remember that particular thing, sometimes connected to the person because I, kind of, you know, I'm interested in people and I kind of remember this is a person and here's how they were working on this and, and that's how I remember it. But the disembodied fact I find, find hard to remember. But I would say it tends to be a trap to learn sort of everything that's been done. Now, now having said that, I'm, I'm a great believer in kind of doing one's homework. 
once one has the particular thing one's doing, try and actually understand all the legs that, that connect to it. And also, for me, I find it very useful to go back and try and understand the history. And usually I under, like to understand the history after I have some understanding of what, where I think things are going. Then it's like, well, how did we get to where we got to now? Um, sometimes I also find it useful to understand the history just purely to contextualize what's going on. Like, for example, I was just uh, looking a little bit because I think some of the things I've been doing in basic science relate to immunology and particularly theoretical immunology. And I was like, well, I knew something about that in the 1980s and I knew some people involved in it. And it's like, let me go check in on what's happened to it. Turns out those people are still kind of, that field hasn't become a very big field. And those people seem to still be important people in that field. And for me to know that history and sort of the flow of, oh, it came from physics mostly, that's very useful to know. It, it helps me sort of contextualize what's going on and say, why isn't there more stuff in the theoretical side from biologists? Well, because it all came from physicists and so on. And knowing that history is very helpful in, in understanding kind of what's likely to be out there. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that can happen is you study a field and you think you more or less have it. And there's some pocket somewhere that you didn't learn about. And I would say it's rather rare that that pocket ends up being something I really care about. It, it can happen. It can happen. Sometimes it's like somebody wrote a very visionary thing at some point and just everybody ignored it. And one finds it and it's like, well, what we know from what we know now, this is really terrific. And you know, I like to write things about history and to kind of recognize those contributions when one finds them. But um, uh, that's something where it's it's not part of you, you know the most common case for that. It's not part of kind of the mainstream. Oh, this is basically how things get understood. Let's see. There's a question here from Alistair. What do you do when you suffer credibility due to lack of paper credentials, um, or? Uh, have I had positive experiences with people hiring people with skills but not credentials? Oh, heck yes. I mean, at one point, I, I haven't done this study recently, but at, at one point, our, uh, this is a number of years ago, our, our advanced R&D group had, um, is this, I, there was a time when I think we had more people who had dropped out of college than had got PhDs in that group. I don't think that's true anymore, but but um, that was true for a while. Um, it, it um, you know, it's a complicated thing. Credentials are, are complicated. And the, the mere existence of a credential, I think, is often quite irrelevant. Sometimes credentials also explain kind of in what ambient setting somebody was for X number of years. Oh, they're in a place where everybody was very ambitious. They'll probably be ambitious too. Or, oh, they're in a place where everybody was, uh, you know, achieving lots of stuff, et cetera, that, you know, where some expectations were set in some way. Um, I think the, uh, you know, let, let's take it for like PhDs, for example. Um, you know, if you're interested in your PhD and you're doing something interesting, and that's great. But, you know, in terms of, you have to realize that as soon as somebody has a PhD, it is in a sense a narrowing credential. You might think of it as being an elevating credential, but for, for some purposes, depending on what you're looking for, it's a narrowing credential. Somebody studied this particular thing for five years. You know, now, it can be helpful to just study something for five years and get the experience of digging into something that deeply and so on and getting a definite result, and that, that's useful, but the 
oh, they studied this, you know, in that way. That's, I mean, that can be very useful, by the way, that, that take it far enough that you really can write your PhD thesis about it and so on. That's a very useful skill. But this idea of, oh, they got this, you know, they, they got this kind of narrowing credential about this particular thing, uh, depending on whether, you know, in, unless you want to like hire somebody for that incredibly specific purpose, it's not going to do you much good. And in fact, it can be the case that people are much more narrowly knowledgeable if they went through and got, you know, went through that tunnel of getting that credential than, than not. I would say that, that for me, the things that, um, uh, it's a tricky thing hiring the right people. And, you know, if you say, who are the best people? Well, it depends on what you're looking for. And it depends on what kind of organization you have. You know, I think in our organization, I like to think we can get lots of kinds of people to thrive who would flounder horribly in most other kinds of organizations. We have a fairly unique organization. And there are other people where you plug them into some existing big company. They do great. You, you put them in our company and they'll be like, oh, my gosh, everything is different. Everything is, you know, being, you know, there's innovation happening all over the place. This is totally disorienting. Um, the... Uh, uh, so, you know, it really depends on for a given person and perhaps even at a given stage of life, there will be different environments that are good versus bad. But I think that the thing, you know, my experience, when I see a cover letter for some job application that says, uh, you know, I am applying for your job X, I am qualified because I have this credential. It's like, well, for our company, I mean, we're not hiring you know, nurses or something like that. We're not hiring people with those kinds of specific professional certifications. Um, but, you know, at least for most, most roles. Um, but um, in fact, I'm trying to think, there are just a few roles where I can imagine where, where professional certifications are directly relevant, but mostly not. Um, it's more like, you know, I think I can do this job because X, Y, Z, um, rather than I got this piece of paper. It proves I can do this. You know, I must say that I, very early in the history of our company, I had some terrible experiences with people who had just magnificent paper credentials and were absolutely useless at doing the kinds of things we needed them to do. And on the flip side, I've had fantastic experiences with people who have, you know, pathetic paper credentials, but they're just, they're able to do spectacular things. Sometimes you can tell that because they already did spectacular things. Sometimes... They, you know, they, you, you don't know what necessarily what you're going to get. And very quickly, you realize they're going to do spectacular things. And I think that's some, now, you know, the process of hiring people, when you don't say, check this box, you've got this credential, you've got that credential, it's challenging. And, you know, I, I like to think I, I, that our HR department, for example, has been enculturated enough at our company that they're able to recognize things. And sometimes these things will wind up on my desk of like, what are we gonna do with this? You know, is this, uh, and it's like, you, you read through the stuff and it's like, wow, this person's really interesting. Or, eh, you know, not for us. Um, and, um, you know, and I think it's not, I would say it's more uh, what people have done and how they present that and how they present to some extent themselves, but I would say it's more present the things they've done. That's the kind of thing that, for me at least, is is resonates. Or even even what they're interested in, what they know about. Those are those are things that are that are useful. Um, and you know, again, different companies are different. We're a very direct sort of low nonsense company. 
um, where you know saying something directly, even if it isn't as well polished and wonderful sounding, is much better than kind of uh, fluffing it up um, and uh, you know and, and covering something which is which is kind of lousy. Um, I think uh, so. Anyway, that, that's um, I, I would say that the um, uh, but it really depends. I mean, there are plenty of companies where they're you know interviewing hundreds of thousands of people every year and where the HR department has no choice but to say, checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. There's just nothing, nothing else they can do. Or maybe sometimes they'll have their own you know, tests and things that they'll run. But um, I, I think that, that it really varies. I mean, when you're dealing with a smaller company, there's a better chance that there's sort of more personal attention to these things. When you're dealing with a very small company, you'll be dealing with you know, the CEO is hiring people. If the CEO is good at hiring, then that may be a big win. If the CEO isn't good and isn't experienced at doing that, it may be disastrous. Because you know, I, I know in my own case, the you know my basic principle is if I've hired for a type of role two or three times, the next time I hire for that role, I'm probably going to get it right with with decently high probability. The first time I hire for a role, or if I change the the type of person that the type of background and so on, a person that we're putting in a particular role, it's hard to get it right the first time. And uh, that's, that's a challenge both for the company and for the person being hired, because you know, the, the best case is it, it's right on both sides and everybody's happy. Um, and uh, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you sort of don't have the experience to get it right, then there's a problem there. Let's see, oh boy. There's a question here from Joe. Do I have an ideal ratio of splitting time between working in the business as opposed to working on the business? So I guess what you mean by that is in the business is like pushing things forward, building products, things like that. On the business is kind of building the structure of the business as such. Um, I think it probably depends on the age of the company and the stage that you're at. I mean, our company is a, is a, you know, it's been sort of, it's a 35-year-old company. We've got a fairly stable structure. Um, at the beginning, or at times when we build new businesses, I'm spending most of my time, if I'm involved with building that new business, well, for me, usually when I'm building new things, there's a lot of actual content of product building and things like that. But that's a time when one is intensely having to figure out how to build the structure of the business, so to speak. Like, for example, the things we're trying to do with NFTs right now, that's something that I'm kind of remiss in not spending more time on it, but it's something where to make that move, we, we understand, I understand something about the product side of it and so on. Now it's a question of, okay, I've got to start making phone calls and doing things and trying to figure out people and putting together teams and things like this. Um, it's a project that's kind of a funny project because it's kind of a project where, where you know, I'm off doing basic science, figuring out things about why our universe exists and very fundamental things about the nature of mathematics and so on. That's kind of one part of my life. There's another part of my life where I'm building practical software and that's kind of deeper tools related kinds of things. And then for me, it's just kind of fun to have something I'm, you know, that's why I'm thinking about this NFT thing. It's a very, it's an interesting opportunity and it's something where it has some sort of intellectual tentacles that I find quite interesting. And it's just kind of fun because it's different. And one of the things I've, I've discovered about stuff I've done in my life is that the thing that's fun and different is the thing that kind of really tends to add sort of the energy 
that feeds back into the other things you're doing. It's like you could go on doing, you know, this big product you've been building for a long time, and there's a certain, or you could go on doing physics that you've been doing for a long time or whatever, and there's a certain kind of inertia of you just, you're on this track, you're doing what you're doing, you're doing the thing. But then you do something and you're just doing it for fun. And it's like suddenly the thing you're doing for fun, you say, oh, actually there's deeper things that come in here and this is how it connects and so on and so on and so on. And the thing that you did for fun kind of added light to the other things that you were doing, which were just sort of a big industrial kind of, you know, walking forwards. You may be very efficient in doing that big sort of industrial walking forward, but the thing you just do for fun, the thing that sort of starts as your hobby, so to speak, then to me, that's those have been the things that have led me to sort of the highest innovation and often the highest value activities that, that, that I've done. But, you know, once one's doing one of those things, when one's saying, okay, we're going to actually build this thing, well, there's a part that is building, defining the structure of what has to built, be built product-wise and so on, and there's defining the business structure around that, which is not a completely different problem. The only thing is, instead of lines of code, you're typically dealing with people. And you know, instead of assembling sort of a, a design for a, you know, a piece of code with this function and that function. You're designing sort of a, a structure. We're going to have this group, like today, for example, I invented, you know, a new group that I think we should have um, at the company that has a, uh, you know, it's, it's just a new factoring of the activities we have. It's sort of a new bucket, a new, and once we have that new group, then we'll think about a bunch of things that fit into that group and we'll do a bunch of things that we should have been doing anyway, but that were kind of in little cracks in different places between other groups. And so I think that's some, um, uh, and, and you know, thinking about those kinds of things is something which particularly when one's building new businesses is something that takes a larger fraction of the time. I would say for me, you know, one of the things for me, which is sort of a, a confusing thing for me is that I'm pretty experienced at this point at doing these kind of business structuring and, and so on kinds of things. I mean, I've been basically involved in running businesses for, what is it, 42 years or something now. Um, and uh, that means, and a and thing that was very confusing to me at the beginning was I didn't know I had any aptitude for this kind of thing at all. Uh, the only thing that, uh, you know, I would just like, well, let's apply common sense and sort of basic analytical thinking to these questions about how to structure some piece of some business or whatever else. And, you know, what I discovered is that by golly, I could actually figure out a not totally silly answer a decent fraction of the time. So for me, it kind of has always seemed rather easy, not to say I haven't made mistakes, I've made plenty, but, but um, it's always seemed like a thing that wasn't a big, oh, let me, you know, it's so confusing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, there's a thing to do, sometimes it takes a while to figure out, but, but there's a, um, and so for me, it's perhaps a confusing thing because the fraction of time I spend doing sort of business structuring is lower than it might otherwise be because A, I'm pretty experienced, and B, I think I might have some aptitude that I didn't know I had for that kind of thing from the beginning, so to speak. So absent those two factors, I would probably spend more of my time doing those types of things. But at some level, you know, building businesses, it's about sort of building it's like doing software design. It's like you're having to, you know, what's the structure? What are the groups? How do they, you know, what, what is the, uh, how do you define the objectives? What, um, uh, and then the raw material is not code, but people typically. And then it's like, how do you fit this set of people together 
to achieve this objective? How do you figure out? And it's, it's kind of like, like when you're doing building technology, it's like you have to make an assessment. Should I use this algorithm or that algorithm? When it's building teams, it's like, should I have this person or that person involved in this team? Same, same types of issues. And, and, you know, and sometimes it's like, well, it's complicated. You know, you're going to put together a team of five people and, and it's like you have to you know, have these different components in the team. And then you have to say, uh, I don't know, in our company, we seem to be able to get people, most people can work with each other. Although sometimes it's like those personalities are so unbelievably incompatible, but sometimes those are actually the best teams um, in the end. There's a question from a comment from memes. How many companies live stream meetings on a frequent and regular basis? We may be the only ones. I don't know. Anybody know of any others? I mean, I started doing this a couple of years ago, a few years ago, because I thought it would be interesting. And um, uh, why not? And it's turned out to be a really useful and valuable thing. Um, I even find, you know, I've been, I've been recording these this is a crazy thing. I mean, this is uh, these video work logs. So these are, you can find them on the web, particularly under the physics project. These are just, when I'm just figuring stuff out and doing physics or whatever on my own, it's like I decided I'm going to just record that. And, you know, maybe it'll be useful one day. Maybe it's absolutely dead useless. I can imagine it's useful. And I know people have used these things. It's like, how did you get that result that you put in this place? Oh, let's find it. It was at this moment, at this, you know, this was the 10 minute period where you were developing this particular thing. You can find what was done. Um, I found personally, it's sort of a sunny psychological thing. You know, I switch on this video work log recording thing. And I think I'm a little bit more focused than I would be if I didn't have that on. I kind of feel like, uh, you know, even though uh, even though who knows, you know, that the recording might be lost. I have no idea. I don't know whether anybody's ever going to watch this. I don't, I don't know. I don't really, really care. But for some reason, it helps me just get a little bit more focused to be doing that. And I think for our uh, internal meetings, I would say uh, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit helpful in terms of focus. It's great in terms of comments from, um, from other people's, um, uh, from other people's, um, uh, getting comments from from the audience, so to speak, that's that's very helpful. Um, I would say, uh, for our own purposes and for training purposes and so on, it's very useful to record all these things. Um, but I, 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 the question that memes is perhaps implicitly asking is, um, you know, this is a question. This is a general question you might ask. If you say I'm doing this and nobody else is doing it, there are two possible answers, two possible conclusions. I figured out something that's a pretty good idea and nobody's figured else, else has figured it out yet. Or, oh my gosh, what am I missing? There must be some disastrous problem with this idea. I mean, I remember when I became a remote CEO 30 years ago, people were like, you can't do that. That's never going to work. And of course it, it works fine as people know now, but um, uh, it's, you know, to me, I suppose I have enough confidence that I, if I'm doing something and I'm noticing, oh, look around, nobody else is doing this, I don't typically get the, oh my gosh, that means I must be doing something wrong. Uh, but who knows? Um, okay, there's some that we'll leave for another time, but, but um, um, there was a comment here about um, from Spencer, would there be a value to developing a PhD equivalent for generalists instead of specialists? 
That's an interesting thought. What would it look like? What would it look like? I mean, it is, see, the problem is there's a certain value to deeply understanding anything, whatever it is. You study some obscure period of history, but you dig deep enough to really see what it feels like to actually do something that sort of digs deeper. And, and similarly, you know, when it's sort of a paradox because you do a project, you have to build it, build that tower tall enough. There's, there's a lot you can see and learn by just building a tall tower, whatever the tower is about. Um, and yet it tends to be the case that people focus a lot, for example, in PhDs on what is the tower about? And maybe, th th maybe there's a certain sense. I mean, yes, I, I would say the following. Something people don't learn usually in, in PhDing and things like that is how to decide which tower to build. It's like, you know a lot about the mechanics of how to build the tower, but figuring out which tower is the right tower to build, figuring out the strategy of not how should you study something, but what should you study is something that is never taught, never mentioned. It's like, if you have a good advisor, they'll suggest something or whatever, maybe they'll have a conversation with somebody. But the, the question of sort of what's the strategy for what to study isn't something that's taught. Now, of course, it can go the other way and you can end up with these things where somebody will come up with the, the seven rules of, of um, uh, you know, inventing a new thing to study. And pretty soon, by the time it's that codified, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling uh, you know, a self-fulfilling failure of some kind. But there's a certain value probably to even, for example, if you've never seen a new thing could be come up with, that's a problem. If you've seen new things come up with and been involved in it and seen roughly how it works, that's useful. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I think that's a, there are probably activities that involve sort of uh, uh, coming up with a bunch of projects and seeing how they work out and so on that are useful. I don't know, it's a good thing to think about. I haven't... Um, I, it's a good question, and I, I'm, I'm. Um, uh, you see, the the thing is, when you look at sort of education, educational results, people will go through all kinds of different educational tracks, and wind up being great. Same track for somebody else, they'll be awful, at least for purposes of whatever it is, like we're trying to achieve at our company or something, and so it's you know, there's a lot of the person interacting with the education track, the education track might enhance or suppress something, but I, I think it's, it's um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a challenging thing. All right, that's a, that's a good, um, 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 that's a good thing. Um, yeah, there's a question. Um, okay, I think I should, uh, should wrap this up here. I'm being told I'm really late for something. Um, but uh, um, Parmenides is commenting, yeah, it's crazy that we stream all this stuff, but they say it's the best. Well, th thanks. That's that's some, um, um, uh, as I say, for us, it's been a win. I mean, you know, for me, you know, in, in sort of disclosure of uh, like sessions like this one, for me, I always find it useful to try to explain things. And because I realize, you know, if you ask me, how do I think about this? How do I think about that? Well, if I never think about it, then, you know, it's, it's like doing sessions like this one gives me 
it, it sort of forces me to think about things that I might otherwise have just sort of, you know, been, oh, well, that's just a thing that flows by and I don't have to think about it. You guys are asking me all kinds of why, you, you know, what do you think about this? Well, how do you think about that? It's very helpful to me to kind of focus my thinking. And so I, that's, that's, you know, that's why I'm doing this because I, I find it fun and interesting. Hopefully other people find it interesting too. But um, uh, that, that's a, um, uh, the thing that I've, I've sort of increasingly realized is that uh, particularly given the kinds of things I do for a living and I like to do that involve sort of figuring out new things, the more I understand, the better off I am in doing that. Maybe there are other activities where that isn't so important, but for me, really understanding things is really quite important. And so having these opportunities to like be put on the spot explaining things is very helpful to me. And it's very useful for me in terms of building more more things, and I'm, I'm sure if I look over the past oh, couple of years, even um, that, uh, well, last even last year, I'm sure if I go back and look that uh, some of these uh, sessions where I've been answering questions about science and technology or about business innovation and so on, I'm sure these have led to valuable concrete ideas that I've then taken off in different directions. And so that's, uh, uh, that's, that's really a, a nice thing for me. All right, we should wrap up for now. Thanks for, for joining us and um, see you another time. And uh, I'm, gonna be, I'm gonna be traveling on a pseudo vacation, which isn't a real vacation. As I said, in my role, you never get to actually take a vacation, but I'm going to be in a, probably in a different location next, next week. So we'll see whether I'm, uh, how I'm able to live stream things, whether I'm able to live stream things um, uh, there. And uh, we'll see, we'll see what, um, what can be done, but I'll, I expect I'll, I'll be back again. Well, this slot next week will be uh, history of science and technology, assuming that I'm in a position to do it. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.